1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
0: Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring tales to terrify and the all-new, far-fetched fables. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. <laughs>
3: this is the starship sova everybody welcome hello and welcome to show 460 i am your host Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Show 460. Man, what a special show. We have a story by Mark Laidlaw, one of my heroes from science fiction writing. Oh, oh man, what a what a guy. actually had Mark on, I think it might have been SofaCon 2 a couple of years ago as well. Do you know what I mean? I kind of, oh, I'm Oh, I'm a happy, happy chap. We've also got our very own Amy H. Sturgis as well on the show with her looking back at genre history. So, let's get into the main fit. Oh, one moment. One moment. This is Jeremy Sal's 100th produced and edited episode. How about that, man? Jeremy, man, 100th, honestly... That has gone. I mean, he's two years, he's not two years, he's been shackled to his desk. Do you know what I mean? Oh man, Jeremy, what can I say? I, you know what I mean? It's an honour to work with the lad. Do you know what I mean? Man, where do you see the kind of the list of writers that he's kind of got? Do you know what I mean? We've got things planned for the new year, which is just amazing. Do you know what I mean? He's kind of, and he, he sent us a message over, Jeremy, he just wants to thank everyone. Do you know what I mean? For just. For listening, for liking these stories, for the donations, you know what I mean? Just for kind of staying with Starship's so Over, do you know what I mean? Kind of, you know, enjoying what we kind of put out there. Do you know what I mean? He's hoping he wants to, he says he wants to stay around for another two years. Man, that chain's tight. Do you know what I mean? I'd like to kind of lock him down for a little bit more, but do you know what I mean? We we wait and see. But uh, it's an honour to work with Jeremy, do you know what I mean? Like I say, he took to, to this role, and trust us it is a mean bitch of a role, do you know what I mean? It's, it's Trying to get into this, you know what I mean? And even just kind of put your foot in the door and work in this environment, it's hard to get a kind of a gig. But then when you realize, you know, the amount of work Jeremy's got to do to kind of get all this up and running, do you know what I mean? It kind of, it floored me, you know, a couple of years ago. So I know, Easy, take it on your shoulders, man. You can run with it, you know what I mean. So, Jeremy, a big, big thank you for kind of helping make Starships over what it is now. Do you know what I mean? Turn it into an amazing show that I'm proud to kind of, you know, work alongside you. Well done, sir. Now, now get yourself back, get them, get them emails sent out. So, like I say. Jeremy has got Mark Laidlaw. The story is 400 Boys, originally published in Omi magazine. Man, there you go. There's a classic as well. That was the, wasn't that the Ellen Datlow one from the, the, the 70s, man? That just kind of laid the groundwork. It was reprinted in Mirror Shares, the cyberpunk anthology, which again was a groundbreaking anthology. Mark Laidlaw is the author of six novels, including the International Horror Guild Award winner the 37th mandela his short stories have appeared in numerous magazines and anthologies since 19 since the 1970s in 1997 he joined valve software and over the next nearly next two decades should I say work as lead writer on the popular half-life and dota 2 franchise in 2016 he retired to resume writing his own stories Recent publications include the novella White Spawn available as a chat book and ebook from PS Publishing. Updates and other things may be found at his white website, marklaidlaw.com. And like I say, you know what I mean, these are kinda of my idols, you know what I mean? So it's it's lovely to have Mark on the show. He's a lovely guy as well. This story is narrated by Eric Luke. Eric Luke is the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake. The comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman, and wrote and directed not-quite-human film for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills, is available free on on iTunes and at quillhammer.com. So... The Starship Suva is Very Proud present
1: 400 Boys by Mark Laidlaw We sit and feel Fun City die.
0: Two stories above our basement at street level, something big is stomping apartment pyramids flat. We can feel the lives blinking out like smashed bulbs. You don't need second sight to see through other eyes at a time like this. I get flashes of fear and sudden pain, but none last long. The paperback drops from my hands, and I blow my candle out. We are the Brothers, a team of twelve. There were twenty-two yesterday, but not everyone made it to the basement in time. Our slicker, Slash, is on a crate, loading and reloading his gun with its one and only silver bullet. Crybaby Jaguar is kneeling in the corner on his old blanket, sobbing like a maniac. For once he has a good reason. My best brother, Jade, keeps spinning the cylinders of the holotube in search of stations, but all he gets is static that sounds like screaming turned inside out. It's a lot like the screaming in our minds, which won't fade except as it gets squelched,
1: voice by voice. Slash goes, Jade, turn that thing off, or I'll short-circuit. He
0: is our leader, our slicker. His lips are gray, his mouth too wide, where a soot scalpel opened his cheeks. He has a lisp. Jade shrugs and shuts down the tube, but the sounds we hear instead are no better. Far away, pounding footsteps, shouts from the sky, even monster laughter. and seems to be passing away from us, deeper into Fun City. They'll be gone in no time, Jade goes. You think you know everything, goes Vavoclaw, dissecting an alarm clock with one chrome finger the way some kids pick their noses. You don't even know what
1: they are. I saw him, goes Jade. Croak and I. Right, croak? A nod without a sound.
0: There's no tongue in my mouth. I only croaked after my free fix-up, which I got for mouthing bad sense to a controller cognobot when I was twelve. Jade and I went out last night and climbed an empty pyramid to see what we could see. Past River Run Boulevard, the world was burning bright, and I had to look away. Jade kept staring and said he saw wild giants running with the glow. Then I heard a thousand guitar strings snapping, and Jade said the giants had ripped up big bridge by the roots and thrown it at the moon. I looked up and saw a black arch spinning end over end, cables twanging as it flipped up and up through shredded smoke and never fell back, or not while we waited, which was not long. Whatever it is could be here for good, goes Slash, twisting his mouth in the middle as he grins. Might never leave. Crybaby stops snorting long enough to say,
1: N-never?
0: Why should they? Looks like they came a long way to get to Fun City, doesn't it? Maybe we have a whole new team on our hands, brothers. Just what we need, goes Jade. Don't ask me to smash with them, though. My blade's not big enough. If the controllers couldn't keep him from crashing through,
1: what could we do? Slash cocks his head. Jade, dear brother, listen close. If I ask you to
0: smash, you smash. If I ask you to jump from a hive, you jump. Or find another team. You know I only ask these things to keep your life interesting. Interesting enough, my best brother grumbles. Hey, goes Crybaby. He's bigger and older than any of us, but doesn't have the brains of a ten-year-old.
1: Listen. We listen. Don't hear nothing, goes Skag. Yeah, n- nothing. They made away. He spoke too soon.
0: Next thing we know, there is thunder in the wall. The concrete crawls underfoot and the ceiling rains. I dive under a table with Jade. The thunder fades to a whisper.
1: Afterward, there is real silence. You okay, Croak? Jade goes. I nod and look into the basement
0: for the other brothers. I can tell by the team spirit in the room that no one is
1: hurt. In the next instant, we let out a twelve-part gasp. There's natural light in the basement. Where from?
0: Looking out from under the table, I catch a parting shot of the moon, two stories and more above us. The last shock had split the old tenement hive open to the sky. Floors and ceilings layer the sides of a fissure. Water pipes cross in the air like metal webs. The floppy head of a mattress spills foam on us. The moon vanishes into boiling black smoke. It is the same smoke we saw washing over the city yesterday, when the stars were sputtering like flares around a traffic wreck. Lady Death's perfume comes creeping down with it. Slash straddles the crack that runs through the center of the room. He tucks his gun into his pocket. The silver of its only bullet was mixed with some of Slash's blood. He saves it for the suit who gave him his grin.
1: A certain slicker named Hilo. Okay, team, he goes. Let's get out of here, pronto. Vave and Jade rip
0: away the boards from the door. The basement was rigged for security, to keep us safe when things got bad in Fun City. Vave shielded the walls with baffles, so when controller Cognobots came scanning for hideaways, they picked up plumbing and an empty room. Never a scoop of us. Beyond the door, the stairs tilt up at a crazy slant, it's nothing we cannot manage. I look back at the basement as we head up, because I'd been getting to think of it as home. We were there when the controllers came looking for war recruits. They thought we were just the right age.
1: Come out, come out, wherever are in free, they yelled. When they came hunting, we did our trick and disappeared. That was in the
0: last of the calendar days, when everyone was yelling, Hey, this is it. World War Last! What they told us about the war could be squeezed into Vave's pinky tip, which he had hollowed out for explosive darts. They still wanted us to fight in it. The deal was, we would get a free trip to the moon for training at Base English. Then we would zip back to Earth, charged up and ready to go, go, go. The Sinosovs were hatching wars like eggs, one after another down south. The place got so hot that we could see the skies that way glowing white some nights, then yellow in the day. Federal control had sealed our continental city tight in a see-through blister. Nothing but air and light got in or out without a password. Vave was sure when he saw the yellow glow that the Sinosovs had launched something fierce against the invisible curtain, something that was strong enough to get through. Quiet as queegs, we creeped to the strip. Our block covers 56th to 88th, between Westland and Chico. The streetlights are busted like every window in all the buildings and the crashed cars. Garbage and bodies are spilled all over. Aw, scud, goes Vave.
1: Crybaby starts bawling. Keep looking, croak, goes Slash to me. Get it all. I want to look away, but I have to
0: store this for later. I almost cry because my ma and my real brother are dead. I put that away and get it all down. Slash lets me keep track of the brothers. At the Federal Pylon, where they control the programmable parts and people of Fun City, Mr. Fixer snipped my tongue and started on the other end. He did not live to finish the job. A team brigade of quasi's and moofs, led by my brothers, sprang me free. That takes teamwork. I know the controllers said otherwise, said that we were smash-crazy subverts like the Anarchanes, with no pledge to Fun City. But if you ever listen to them, salt your ears. Teams never smashed unless they had to. When life pinched in Fun City, there was nowhere to jump but sideways into the next block. Enter with no invitation, and... things worked out. I catch a shine of silver down the strip. A Cognobot is stalled with scanners down, no use to the shaveheads who sit in the pylon and watch the streets. I point it out, thinking there can't be
1: many shaveheads left. No more law, goes Jade. Nothing in our way, goes Slash. We start down the strip.
0: On our way past the cog, Vave stops to unbolt the laser nipples on its turret. Hooked to battery packs, they will make slick snappers. We grab flashlights from busted monster marts. For a while, we look into the ruins. But that gets nasty fast. We stick to finding our way through the fallen mountains that used to be pyramids and block long hives. It takes a long time. There is fresh paint on the walls that still stand, dripping red-black like it might never dry. The stench of fresh death blows at us from Center City. Another alley cat pissed our block. I wonder about survivors. When we send our minds out into the ruins, we don't feel a thing. There were never many people here when times were good. Most of the hives emptied out in the fever years, when the oldies died and the kitty kids, untouched by disease, got closer together and learned to share their power. It keeps getting darker, hotter. The smell gets worse. Bodies staring from windows make me glad I never looked for Ma or my brother. We gather canned food, keeping ultra-quiet. The Strip has never seen such a dead night. Teams were always roving, smashing, throwing clean fun free-for-alls. Now there's only us. We cross through block after block. Bennies, Silks, Quasis, Mannies, and Angels. No one. If any teams are alive, they are in hideaways unknown. If they head out overground, they are as dead as the rest. We wait for the telltale psychic tug, like a whisper in the pit of your belly, that another team gives. There is nothing but death in the night. Rest tight, teams, Jade goes. Wait, goes Slash. We stop at 265th in the Snubnose Block. Looking down the strip, I see someone sitting high on a heap of ruined cement. He shakes his head, puts up his hands. Well, well, goes Slash. The doob starts down the heap. He is so weak he tumbles and avalanches the rest of the way to the street. We surround him, and he looks up into the black zero of Slash's gun. Hiya, Hilo, Slash goes. He has on a grin he must have saved with the silver bullet. It runs all the way back to his ears. How's so? Hilo doesn't look so slick. His red and black lightning bolt suit is shredded and stained, the collar torn off for a bandage around one wrist. The left lens of his dark owl rims is shattered, and his buzz cut is scraped to nothing. Hilo doesn't say a word. He stares up into the gun and waits for the trigger
1: to snap, the last little sound he will ever hear. We are waiting, too. There's one big tear dripping
0: from the shattered lens, washing Hilo's grimy cheek. Slash laughs. Then he lowers the gun and says, (laughs) Not tonight. Hilo does not even twitch. Down the strip, a gas main blows up and paints us
1: all in orange light. We all start laughing. It's funny, I guess. Hilo's smile is silent. Slash jerks Hilo to his feet. I got other stuff under my skin, Slicker. You look like run over Scud. Where's your team? Hilo looks at the ground and shakes his head slowly. Slicker, he goes. We got flattened. No other way to put it. A stream of tears follows the first. He clears them away. There's no suits left.
0: There's you, goes Slash, putting a hand on Hilo's shoulder.
1: Can't be a slicker without a team. Sure you can. What happened? Hilo looks down the street. New team took our block, he goes. They're giants, Slash. I know it sounds crazy. No, goes Jade. I seen them. Hilo goes.
0: We heard them coming. But if we had seen them, I would never have told the suits to stand tight. Thought there was a chance we could hold our own.
1: But we got smeared. They threw us. Some of my buds flew higher than the pylon. These boys. Incredible
0: boys. Now 400th is full of them. They glow and shiver like the lights when you get clubbed and fade out. Vave goes. Sounds like chiller-dillers. If I thought they were only boys, I wouldn't be scared, brother, goes Hilo. But there's more to them. We tried to psych them out, and it almost worked. They're made out of that kind of stuff. It looks real, and it will cut you up. But when you go at it with your mind, it buzzes away like bees. There weren't enough of us to do much. And we weren't ready for them. I only got away because nimblejacks knocked me cold and stuffed me under a transport. When I got up, it was over. I followed the strip. Thought some teams might be roving, but there's nobody. Could be in hideaways. I was afraid to check. Most teams would squelch me before I said word one. It's hard alone. Different with a team behind you. Goes slash. How many hideaways do you know? Maybe six. Had a line on jip-japs, but not for sure. I know where to find zips, kingpins, girls, mermies, sledges. We could get to the Galrog block fast through the sub-tunnels. Slash turns to me. What have we got? I pull out the beat-up list and hand it to Jade, who reads it. Jipjaps, japs sledges, drummers, A.V. Maria's, chicks, chogs. Danny's. If any of them are still alive, they would know others. True, goes Slash. Jade nudges me. Wonder if this new team has got a name. He knows I like spelling things out. I grin and take back the list, pull out a pencil, and put down 400 boys. Cause they took 400th, Jade goes. I nod, but that is not all. Somewhere I think I read about boys knocking down the world, torturing grannies. Seems like something these boys would do. Down the street, the moon comes up through smoke making it the color of rust. Big chunks are missing. We'll smash him, goes Vave. The sight of the moon makes us sad and scared at the same time. I remember how it had been perfect and round as a pearl on jewelry-mart velvet, beautiful and brighter than streetlights, even when the worst smogs died at brown. Even that brown was better than this chipped-away bloody red. Looks like it was used for target practice. Maybe those boys tossed the bridge at base English.
1: Our block is gone, goes Hilo. I want those boys. It'll be those doobs or me. We're with you, goes Slash. Let's move fast. Cut into pairs, brothers. We're going to hit
0: some hideaways. Jade, Croak, you come with me and Hilo. We'll see if those Galrogs will listen to sense. Slash tells the other brothers where to look and where to check back. We say goodbye. We find the stairs to the nearest sub-tunnel and go down into lobbies full of shadow, where bodies lie waiting for the last train. We race rats down the tunnel. They are meaner and fatter than ever, but our lights hold them back. Still got that wicked blade? goes Slash. This baby? Hilo swings his good arm and a scalpel blade drops into his hand. Slash's eyes frost over, and his mouth tightens. May need it, he goes. Right, brother. Hilo makes the blade disappear. I see. That is how it has to be. We pass a few more lobbies before going up and out. We've moved faster than we could have on ground. Now we are close to the low end of Fun City. This way, Hilo points past broken hives. I see codes scripted on the rubbled walls. Galrog signals. Wait, goes Jade. I'm starved. There is a liquor store a block away. We lift the door and twist it open, easy as breaking an arm. Nothing moves inside or on the street as our lights glide over rows of bottles. Broken glass snaps under our sneakers. The place smells drunk, and I'm getting that way from breathing. We find chips and candy bars that have survived under a counter, and we gulp them down in the doorway. So, where's the Galrog hideaway, goes Jade, finishing a
1: Fifth Avenue bar. Just then, we feel that little deep tug. This one, whispers death. A team is letting us know that it has us surrounded. Hilo goes, duck back. No, goes Slash. No more hiding.
0: We go slow to the door and look through. "'Shadows peel from the walls and streak from alley mouths. "'We're sealed tight. "'Keep your blades back, brothers.' "'I never smashed with Galrogs. "'I see why Slash kept us away. "'They are tanked out with Daystar, snappers, guns, and glory sticks. "'Even unarmed, they would be fierce, "'with their fire-painted eyes, chopped topknots, a dozen colors, "'and rainbow geometries tattooed across their faces. "'Most are dressed in black.' All are on razor-toed roller skates. Their feelings are masked from us behind a mesh of silent threats. A low voice.
1: Come out, if you plan to keep breathing.
0: We move out, keeping together as the girls close tight. Jade raises his flashlight, but a galrog with blue-triangled cheeks and purple-blonde topknot kicks it from his hand. It goes spinning a crazy beam through the dark. There is not a scratch on Jade's fingers. I keep my own light low. A big Galrog pulls up. She looks like a Cognobot slung with battery packs, wires running up and down her arms and through her afro, where she's hung tin bells and shards of glass. She has a laser turret strapped to her head, and a snapper in each hand. She checks me and Jade over and out, then turns toward the Slickers. Slicker high-low and slicker slash, she goes. Cute match. But I thought suits were hot for girlies. Keep it short, Bela, goes Slash. The blocks are smashed. So I see. She smiles with black, acid-edged teeth. Heavy's got stomp next door. And we got a new playground. Have fun playing for a day or two, goes Hilo. The ones who squelched them are coming back for you. Buildings squash them. The end of the ramming world has been and gone. Where were you? There's a new team playing in Fun City, Hilo goes. Bela's eyes turn to slits. Ganging on us now, huh? That's a get-off. The 400 boys, goes Jade. (laughs) Enough to keep you busy, she laughs and skates a half-circle. Maybe. They're taking Fun City for their block, maybe all of it. They don't play fair. Those boys never heard of clean fun. Scud. She goes and shakes her hair so tin bells shiver. You blue cirks, kids. Slash knows that she is listening. We're calling all teams, Bela. We gotta save our skins now. And that means we need to find more hideaways. Let more slickers know what's up. Are you in or out? Hilo goes. They smashed the suits in thirty seconds flat. A shockwave passes down the street like the tail end of a whiplash from Center City. It catches us all by surprise, and our guards go down. Galrogs, brothers, Soot, we are all afraid of those wreckers. It unites us just like that. When the shock passes, we look at one another with wide eyes. All the unspoken Galrog threats are gone. We have to hang together. Let's take these kids home, goes Bela. Yeah, mommy. With a whisper of skates, the Galrogs take off. Our well-armed escort leads us through a maze of skate trails cleared in rubble. Boys, huh? I hear Bela say to the other slickers. We thought different. What did you think? Gods, Bela goes. Gods? God things? Mind stuff? Old Mother looked into her mirror and saw a bonfire made out of cities. Remember before the blister tore? There were wars in the South. Weird bombs going off like firecrackers. Who knows what kind of stuff was cooking in all that blaze. Old Mother said it was the end of the world. Time for the ones outside to come through the cracks. They scooped all that energy and molded it into mass. Then they started scaring up storms, smashing. Where better to smash than fun city? End of the world, goes Hilo. And why are we still here? Bela laughs. <laughs> you doob! How did you ever get to be a slicker? Nothing ever ends. Nothing. In ten minutes, we come to a Monster Mart pyramid with its lower mirror windows put back together in jigsaw shards. Bela gives a short whistle, and the double doors swing wide. In we go. The first thing I see are boxes of supplies heaped in the aisles, cookstoves burning, cots and piles of blankets. I also spot a few people who can't be Galrogs, like babies and a few grown-ups. We've been taking in survivors, goes Bela. Old mother said that we should, she shrugs. Old Mother is ancient, I have heard. She lived through the plagues and came out on the side of the teams. She must be upstairs, staring in her mirror, mumbling. Slash and Hilo look at each other. I cannot tell what they are thinking. Slash turns to me and Jade. Okay, brothers, we got work to do. Stick around. Got anywhere to sleep? Jade goes. The sight of all those cots and blankets made both of us feel tired. Bela points at a dead escalator. Show them the way, Shell. The Galrog with a blonde topknot that's streaked purple speeds down one aisle and leaps the first four steps of the escalator. She runs to the top without skipping a stroke and grins down from above. She's an angel, goes Jade. There are more Galrogs at the top. Some girls are snoring along the walls. Shell cocks her hips and laughs. <laughs> Never seen brothers in a Monster Mart before. Aw, my ma used to shop here, goes Jade. He checks her up and over.
1: What'd she buy? Your daddy?
0: Jade sticks his thumb through his fist and wiggles it with a big grin. The other girls laugh, but not shell. Her blue eyes darken, and her cheeks redden under the blue triangles. I grab Jade's arm. Don't waste it, goes another Galrog. I'll take the tip off for you, goes Shell, and flashes a blade. Nice and neat.
1: I tug Jade's arm, and he drops it. Come on, grab blankets, goes Shell. You can bed over there. We take our
0: blankets to a corner, wrap up, and fall asleep close together. A dream of smoke. It is still dark when Slash wakes us. Come on, brothers. Lots of work to do. Things have taken off, we see. The Galrogs know the hideaways of more teams than we ever heard of, some from outside Fun City. Runners have been at it all night, and things are busy now. From uptown and downtown in a wide circle around 400th, they have called all who can come. The false night of smoke goes on and on, no telling how long. It is still dark when Fun City starts moving. Over Hive and Under Street, by sewer, strip, and alleyway, we close in tourniquet tight on 400th, where suits ran a clean fun block. From 1st to 1,000th, Bayview Street to River Run Boulevard, the rubble scatters and the subtunnels swarm as Fun City moves. Brothers and Galrogs are joined by ratbeaters, drummers, mermies, and kingpins from Piltdown, Renfrew, and the Upperhand Hills. The Diablos cruise down with chogs and cholos, sledges and trimtones, Jip-Japs and A.V. Marias. Tints, chicks, Rocco boys girls, floods, zips, and zaps. More than I can remember. It is a single team, the Fun City team. And all the names mean the same thing. We brothers walk shoulder to shoulder, with the last swoot among us. Up the sub-stairs we march to a blasted black surface. It looks like the end of the world, but we are still alive. I can hardly breathe for a minute, but I keep walking and let my anger boil. Up ahead of us, the 400 boys quiet down to a furnace roar. By 395th, we have scattered through cross streets into the boys' block. When we reach 398th, fire flares from hives ahead. There is a sound like a skyscraper taking its first step. A scream echoes high between the towers and falls to the street. At the next corner... I see an arm stretched out under rubble. Around the wrist, the cuff is jagged, black and red. Go to it, goes Hilo.
1: We step onto 400th and stare forever. I'll never forget. The streets we knew are gone. The
0: concrete has been pulverized to gravel and dust, cracked up from underneath. Pyramid hives are baby volcano cones that hack smoke, ooze fire, and burn black scars in the broken earth. Towers hulk around the spitting volcanoes like buildings warming themselves under the blanked-out sky. Were the 400 boys building a new city? If so, it would be much worse than death. Past the fires, we can see the rest of Fun City. We feel the team on all sides, a pulse of life connecting us, one breath. Hilo has seen some of this before, but not all. He sheds no tears tonight. He walks out ahead of us to stand black against the flames. He throws back his head and screams. Hey! A cone erupts between the monster buildings. It drowns him out, so he shouts even louder. Hey, you 400 boys! Scattered streetlights pop half to life. Over my head, one explodes with a flash. This is our block, 400 boys! Galrogs and trim tones beat on overturned cars. It gets my blood going. So you knocked in our hives, you boys. So you raped our city. Our world. I think of the moon, and my eyes sting. So what? The streetlights black out. The earth shudders. The cones roar and vomit hot blood all over those buildings. I hear it sizzle as it drips. Thunder talks among the towers. I
1: bet you will never grow up.
0: Here they come. All at once there are more buildings in the street. I thought they were new buildings. But they were big boys. Four hundred at least. Stay cool, goes Slash. The four hundred boys thunder into our streets. We move back through shadows into hiding places only we can reach. The first boys swing chains with links the size of skating rinks. Off come the tops of some nearby hives. The boys cannot quite get at us from up there but they can cover us with rubble. They look seven or eight years old for all their size, and there is still baby pudge on their long, sweaty faces. Their eyes have a vicious shine, like boys that age get when they are pulling the legs off a bug, laughing wild but freaked and frightened by what they see their own hands doing. They look double deadly because of that. They are on fire under their skin, fever yellow. They look more frightened than us. Fear is gone from the one team. We reach out at them as they charge, sending our power from all sides. We chant, but I do not know if there are any words. It is a cry. It might mean, take us if you can, boys. Take us at our size. I feel as if I have touched a cold, yellow blaze of fever. It sickens me, but the pain lets me know how real it is. I find strength in that. We all do. We hold onto the fire, sucking it away, sending it down through our feet into the earth. The boys start grinning and squinting. They seem to be squeezing inside out. The closest ones start shrinking, dropping down to size with every step. We keep on sucking and spitting the fever. The fire passes through us. Our howling synchronizes. The boys keep getting smaller all the time, smaller and dimmer. Little kids never know when to stop. Even when they are burned out, they keep going. As we fall back, the first boy comes down to size. One minute he is taller than the hives. Then he hardly fills the street. A dozen of his shrinking pals fill in on either side. They whip their chains and shriek at the sky like screaming cutouts against the downtown fires. They break past Hilo in the middle of the street and head for us. Now they are twice our size. Now, just right. This I can handle. Smash! Yells Slash. One boy charges me with a wicked black curve I can't see till it's whispering in my ear. I duck fast and come up faster where he doesn't expect me. He goes down soft and heavy, dead. The sick yellow light throbs out with his blood, fades on the street. I spin to see Jade knocked down by a boy with an axe. There is nothing I can do but stare as the black blade swings high. Shrill whistle, wheels whirring. A body sails into the boy and flattens him out with a footful of razors and ball bearings. Purple-blonde topknot and a big grin. The Galrog skips high and stomps his hatchet hand into cement, leaving stiff fingers curling around mashed greenish blood and bones. Shell laughs at Jade and takes off. I run over and yank him to his feet. Two boys back away into a dark alley that lights up as they go in. We start after but they have already been fixed by quasi's and drummers lying in wait. Jade and I turn away. Hilo still stares down the street. One boy has stood tall, stronger than the rest, and more resistant to our power. He wraps a massive club in his hand. Come on, slicker, Hilo calls. You remember me, don't you? The biggest of the boys comes down, eating up the streets. We concentrate on draining him, but he shrinks more slowly than the others. His club slams the ground. Boom! And me and some Galrogs land on our asses. The club creases a hive, and cement sprays over us. Glass sings through the air. Hilo does not move. He waits, with red and black lightning bolts serene, both hands empty. The big slicker swings again, but now his head only reaches the fifth floor of an RX. Hilo ducks as the club streaks over and turns a storefront window into dust. The soot scalpel glints in his hand. He throws himself at the boy's ankle and grabs on tight. He slashes twice. The boy screams like a cat. Neatest hamstringing you ever saw. The screaming boy staggers and kicks out hard enough to flip Hilo across the street into the metal cage of a shop window. Hilo lands in a heap of impossible angles and does not move again. Slash cries out. His gun shouts louder. One blood-silver shot, it leaves a shining line in the smoky air. The boy falls over and scratches the cement till his huge fingertips bleed. His mouth gapes wide as a manhole. His eyes stare like the broken windows all around. His pupils are slit like a poisoned snake's, his
1: face long and dark, hook-nosed. God or boy, he is dead. Like some of us.
0: Five drummers climb over the corpse for the next round, but with their slicky dead, the boys are not up to it. The volcanoes belch as though they, too, are giving up. The survivors stand glowing in the middle of their block. A few start crying, and that is a sound I cannot spell. It makes Crybaby start up. He sits down in cement, sobbing through his fingers. His tears are the color of an oil rainbow on wet asphalt. We keep on sucking up the fever glow, grounding it all in the earth. The boys cry louder, out of pain. They start tearing at each other, running in spirals, and a few leap into the lava that streams from the pyramids. The glow shrieks out of control, out of our hands, gathering between the boys with its last strength, ready to pounce. It leaps upward a hot snake screaming into the clouds.
1: Then the boys drop dead and never move again. A hole in the ceiling of smoke. The dark blue sky peeks through, turning pale as the smoke thins. The boys' last scream dies out in the dawn. The sun looks bruised, but there it is. Up there. Let's get to it. Go slash. Lots of clean up ahead. He has been crying. I guess he loved Hilo like a brother. I wish I could say something. We help one another up. Slap shoulders. And watch the sun come out gold and orange and blazing white. I don't have to tell you.
3: There you go, get, copyright is Marks. Mark, thank thank you, sir. Listen, if I ever get over there, I'm buying you a pint or a whiskey or, or whatever your, your beverage is. It's. We should meet up again on, online as well. It was lovely to kind of have a chat when we were doing the, the sofa con. And Eric, sir. Eric, thank you so much, man. Yes, what a voice. Thank you. Jeremy, book Eric again. <laughs> get Eric signed up. So... Now we move on to obviously that was I thought that was the end of it. No we have our very own what can I say?
4: Amy H Sturgis Ims Hello friends. It is time for another look back into genre history. It is now November, and I think that's probably a good thing. That means twenty sixteen is almost over. And I'm just not really sure how much more of twenty sixteen I can stand. It seems to have been designed to bring us one bit of bad news after another. And so I'm pretty happy about saying goodbye to it. I don't know about you. Let's hope that 2017 treats everyone a bit better. What I'd like to do today is talk about some sad news that we received. But in the spirit of my last looking back into genre history, I also want this to be something of a celebration. Because science fiction has lost an important author, and I want to remember her. I'm talking about Sherry S. Tepper, pioneering author, born in 1929. She left us on the 22nd of October 2016. She was a prolific author. She wrote horror under the name E. E. Horlack and mysteries as A.J. Ord and B.J. Oliphant, and in fact, she started out writing children's stories in the early 60s under the name Sherry S. Eberhardt. But we in the science fiction community will remember her as Sherry S. Tepper. She was born near Littleton, Colorado, and for most of her career, she worked for Rocky Mountain Planned Parenthood. She eventually became its executive director. She has two children. She was married for more than 50 years to Jean Tepper, and in later life operated a guest ranch in Santa Fe, New Mexico. The first science fiction novel she wrote was a standalone novel called The Revenants, which was published in 1984. In 1991, she released the novel Beauty, for which she won the Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel. She can always considered herself to be an eco-feminist, that is, she linked feminism with ecology. The flip side is to see patriarchal sexism as related to and shored up by patriarchal abuse of the environment, as she would explain in a number of her works. Many of her works were shortlisted for major awards, including the Arthur C. Clark Award, the James Tiptree Jr. Award, the Hugo Award, the Campbell Memorial Award, the... Novella The Gardener, which she published in 1989, was a World Fantasy Award finalist, and she received a World Fantasy Life Achievement Award last year, in 2015. What I'd like to do now is talk about several of Tepper's works from different points in her career, and then end by talking about my favorite work by Tepper, and the one that I would most recommend if you're looking for something to read by Tepper. First, let me mention Grass from 1989. It was a Hugo and Locus Award nominee, and it was the first book in a trilogy. The third novel of that trilogy was nominated for the John W. Campbell Award. It tells the story of a distant future Terra, Earth, that has become overpopulated and resources overstretched. And because of this, the human race has spread out across the galaxy and populated new planets—or planets at least new to us, right? And one of those planets is Grass, so named because it's pretty much all prairie. There is an incurable plague that seems to be crossing human settlements throughout known space, and the authoritarian religious rulers of humanity, sanctity, send investigators to this distant prairie planet of grass, because it seems to be the only place that the plague hasn't affected the population. So we encounter this story through Marjorie, one of those investigators sent to the planet. Grass was populated by former European nobility, so the immigrants have created a kind of fiefdom there. And the first stage of Marjorie's search is to try to befriend this secretive group who have seemingly become obsessed with this localized variant of fox hunting, using the planet's native fauna in place of the horses, hounds, and foxes found on Terra. Again, an eco-feminist work, quite interesting. Gibbon's Decline and Fall from 1996 was an Arthur C. Clarke Award nominee. The title harks back to the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by English historian Edward Gibbon, usually referred to as Gibbon's Decline and Fall, that work was published between 1776 and 1789, and it traces the trajectory of the Roman Empire and pretty much Western civilization as a whole from the late first century AD to the fall of the Eastern uh, Byzantine Empire. And that illusion sort of undergirds the entire novel. The novel's about a wave of fundamentalism that's sweeping across the globe as the millennium approaches. There's a power-hungry presidential candidate who wants to make his name by essentially finding an example to hold up. He, he finds a teenage girl who abandoned her infant in a dumpster, and, and he holds this up as, as an example of what's wrong with the country. And a woman named Carolyn Crespin, a former attorney who left her job for a quiet family life, takes the girl's case. The story then follows five friends from college she has to call on. They always vowed to stay together, to never decline and fall, a la Gibbon, despite the increasing difficulty that exists for women as society is transformed by power-hungry male leaders who are building their empire, right? Right. So, among other things, the theme of subjugation of women is is strong in this novel, and the success of these women coming together to try to fight the powers that be ends up depending a lot on the assistance of Sophie, this enigmatic, mysterious sixth friend, this person they all had assumed was dead. I think Susie Quint sums it up when she says in her review, If I were pitching this as high concept, it would be The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants meets American Gods meets Ayn Rand. Quite a heady mixture. And another work I really should comment on, The Margarets from 2007. It was a finalist for the James Tiptree, John W. Campbell, and Arthur C. Clarke Awards. In... The future, the myriad alien civilizations that populate distant, faraway worlds have good reasons to hate the blight known as humanity. The only child living in a work colony on the Martian satellite of Phobos is little Margaret Bain, and she invents six imaginary companions to fight her boredom and her loneliness. Each is an extension of her personality. But when she's forced to return to Earth, these six extensions of herself are lost to her. But they're not gone. They basically spin off and live their own lives, become their own women. And as it turns out, the time will come when fully grown-up, married Margaret has to leave the dying Earth, which is so wrecked that its only export left is slaves. And she has to reunite the Margarets, bring them home, in order to save the human race. Very very complex and interesting stuff, the Margarets. But if you're going to read only one work, or at least introduce yourself to the work of Sherry Tepper. I would recommend The Gate to Women's Country, which was first published in 1987. It won the Locus Award for Best Fantasy Novel and was an Arthur C. Clarke Award nominee. I have used this one again and again in the classroom, in my History of Science Fiction course, in my course on the dystopian tradition—this is very clearly a dystopia— and also in a course that I sometimes teach on single gender worlds and how communities of only one gender are portrayed across time in science fiction. And uh, this is a fascinating case study. The novel is so good at raising questions that it never fails to work as, as a teaching text. So in The Gate to Women's Country, Tepper offers a fascinating meditation on how a post-apocalyptic people might seek to limit the potential for future violence and thus avoid another devastating Holocaust. This one is presumably nuclear. The division of genders into women's country on the one side and the warrior society on the other side is is a really unsettling one. The men lead a kind of Hobbesian life, nasty, brutish, and short, uh, while the women preserve a a strangely passive-aggressive tyranny based on secrets and half-truths and closeted eugenics programs. Now, the book starts out by suggesting an easy answer to the question of where violence comes from, Clearly, this post-apocalyptic society has decided that violence comes from men, and the way to solve the problem of how do we avoid another nuclear apocalypse is to limit the power that men have. But then the novel refuses to accept that answer. It complicates the question. It says, well, that's not a good enough response. Because, as we see, as it plays out in the story— What else can the men in this dystopian future become? If they're distrusted by the women, denied education by the women, fed lies and propaganda by the women, it becomes a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. Why are men violent? Well, we're treating them this way because they are violent, but treating them this way ensures that they are violent. In the effort not to repeat the mistakes of the distant past, both the women and the men of women's country have sort of locked themselves into a cycle of more recent and arguably more costly mistakes. The book also issues a kind of challenge to the reader. We don't really get to know very well servitors such as Joshua and Corig, real men, if you will, who choose to turn their back on the warriors and provide, in, in more ways than most realize, uh, for the women. We don't really get to learn too much about their characterization. They remain quite mysterious and, and half-drawn. Tepper doesn't seem to know exactly what this alternate portrait of masculinity looks like up close. But in a way, she's making a comment by saying this, by making this clear to the to the reader, and also asking the reader to fill in the blanks. What would this alternate portrait of masculinity look like if the man did not have to be the aggressor, if the man did not have to, to fight, um, if afforded the same sort of opportunities that women's country affords women, what would the men be like? It's an open question, and she invites the reader to fill in those blanks. She also portrays a really interesting uh, damned few, this this group of female decision-makers behind the curtain that very few see. They have great authority that they have granted themselves, uh, an authority capable of and, and sometimes amenable to wiping out entire populations. And there's a lot of ambivalence. Sometimes Tepper seems to feel a bit sorry and apologetic for them, but at other times she really is willing to point out just how disturbing this society is. It's a worthy classic Despite all, really, because of all of the difficult questions it raises, even if its answers are incomplete, again, it's an invitation to the, to the audience, and, and the answers also, those that are provided, are uncomfortable. Uh, they, they leave us in a kind of moral gray area that we've got to wrestle ourselves out of. And because of that, it continues to be a really interesting and engaging work that not only encapsulates the concerns of its time, but also transcends them. As a woman, as an eco-feminist, as a prolific writer of quality science fiction and other genres of work, Sherry S. Tepper has carved a place for herself that will not soon be forgotten. And I'm grateful for this chance to talk about her work with you today. And I look forward to talking to you again soon with another look back on genre history. Thank you.
3: Amy, I thank you. Thank you so much, James. Big hugs. Big, big, big kind of bear squeezes. Like, uh, a big brother gives his sister, oh, one of them. Thank you so much. So that is the end of the show. Now, like I say, I was mentioned. Jeremy's been here, you know, the 100th episode. Wow oh, man. We are in the, in the process of planning a few things. Like I say, Jeremy's got a lineup, which is kind of hitting out all the kind of, Balls out of the park. Do you know what I mean? But we've got some exciting news coming as well very, very soon. So do stay around, you know, and support her, Do you know what I mean? Don't forget Patreon. We are there to help. Please, please, we put out all this great great stories. Until next week. Just like I say, good night from me. Ooh. survive this terrible ordeal?
4: Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment?
0: Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Story.
4: Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
0: The District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary
1: productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.